Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dan Rubenstein and Nancy Dyson are the authors of a book titled St. Michael's Residential School, Lament and Legacy. In 1970, Dan and Nancy were hired as childcare workers at the Alert Bay Student Residence, which was formerly St. Michael's Indian Residential School, that's what it was called, off northern Vancouver, and Vancouver Island. And they observed indigenous children being treated terribly. It's in the book. And they both join us on the program. Uh, Dan, Nancy, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting us. Before we talk about what you experienced in the years since 1970, when you were exposed to what you were exposed to, and we'll talk about what happened when you try to correct the situation. But what what has that left you with? What legacy, what feelings has that left you with some 50 years later? We both feel very regretful that we didn't do more. We weren't sure what to do. Um, we'll talk probably later about the fact that we did join in the community uh, in presenting a petition, a delegation from Ottawa, from the Department of Indian Affairs, did visit the school. We listed our concerns and Dan was fired the next day. We left and moved to another island where we were fairly remote. There was no internet. We didn't even have a telephone. We didn't. We knew that the government didn't want to hear what our concerns were. The church was no longer in charge. Uh, the government, the federal government, had taken control of the residential schools a year before in 1969, and the media was not reporting the plight of these Indigenous families and children. Now, it was a very different world. So you moved to Canada from the United States in 1970, and you were impressed with what you saw and observed about this country at that time, and you found those jobs as child care workers. So now, before I ask you about the move to St. Michael's, in Alert Bay or at Alert Bay. What did um, being a child care worker consist of in Canada in 1970? Well, what it it meant is that the kids went to day schools uh, in the community of Alert Bay or in Port McNeil. So it meant getting the kids up, getting them dressed, uh, getting them to breakfast, uh, then walking them to school, Then we were off duty. Then we'd pick them up from school and try to find activities in the evening. Uh, And then putting them to bed and starting the cycle over. Okay. Uh, No, go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. The the most memorable part of that was every morning, every child, I had 25 little boys, and every every one of them would wet their beds. that, That is the smell, the reeking smell uh, of those sheets uh, is one of the things that stays with me and that really is symbolic of uh, what it was like for those kids. Well, let's talk about that. Day one at St. Michael's, 
you witnessed what happened to newly arrived children who were delivered to the school at that day uh, by an Indian agent. Four kids. Tell us what happened. The uh, matron asked Dan and I to accompany her, and she led us to a sub-basement. And these four little children came in, two little girls and two little boys. The matron was wearing a stiff white apron over a shirtwaist dress, and she pulled out some heavy shears, and she grabbed the first child and cut the child's hair, little girl's hair, let the hair fall to the floor. And then she cut off her clothes and let the clothes fall to the floor. Then she picked up the whole mass and threw it into the firebox of the boiler. And the flames, you know, there was a big whoosh and the flames got even more intense and the children were terrified. And Dan said, is this necessary? And the matron said, lice. They all come in with lice. She couldn't see the bigger picture. These children were terrified and they had just been forcibly removed from their family it was um, it was very jarring. It's a lingering memory that haunts me. Oh, and, and sorry, no. Go, go ahead. Add to that, Roy. When I was reading the TRC reports, I found a quote from a priest who had written uh, seventy-five years before, saying that the way to separate these children from their culture is to strip them of their clothing and to. And he described the same procedure I had seen. And that something clicked into place in my mind that this was this was not a random event. This was part of a systematic pattern. How old were these kids? Oh, these little ones were probably the youngest might have been five or six, the oldest ten. And they'd just been taken from their families, from their parents, from everything they knew. And now they find mm -hmm. themselves in this place and their clothing is being cut off their bodies and their hair is being cut, and they're standing there, I imagine, essentially naked. Now, yes. if, this happened, if this happened to an, a worldly adult, that would be a frightening, very frightening situation. If some people who suddenly assume authority over you and start wielding shears and scissors and leave you standing naked, that's, that would be traumatizing for an adult, never mind a little kid. That's right. And hair was very symbolic in most indigenous cultures. When hair was cut, it symbolized a death in a family. So some children, I don't know about these children, but I read later that some children, when their hair was cut, they assumed not only had they been taken from their families, but their families had died. And that was a level, another level of trauma that I wasn't aware of until recently. Uh, you write, cruelty begets cruelty. I, I saw that in a piece that you, an op-ed that you wrote. Nancy, could you just yes. could you explain what that what you're saying? Well, in addition to the harsh discipline meted out by some of the staff, I, I want to say not all the staff. There were other staff at St. Michael's who were trying to be kind and caring to the children, but there were some who were who believed in harsh discipline. They thought Indian kids were tough. In addition to that, there was there was cruelty among the, the children. Um, Dan and I adopted a puppy, and we found uh, that two boys had broken into our apartment, which was in the residence, and they had tried to hang the puppy. The janitor found the little little pup hanging and cut him down before he could die, but um, that was quite cruel. Another time, an older girl pushed a little girl down in a swimming pool and held her there until the, you know, I had to intervene. And I was afraid. I didn't know how far this was going to go. There were lots of fights among kids. 
That was very troubling. So they were exposed to cruelty and they acted in the same manner. Yes. So what, uh, when you were told at the beginning, and I don't know whether it was both of you or one of you, but you were told to, quote, discipline them right from the start, what, what, would they, what, what, what did they expect that discipline to consist of? Well, the, the discipline was, I mean, things like kids are going to throw food, uh, you know, and when there was food throwing, there could be a harsh strapping that would follow. And, and by the way, when I did the research about the, the school, I, I found that a similar case had been food throwing uh, 30 years before we got there. And again, very, very harsh discipline. And one of the headmasters had been removed. Mm -hmm. So it was following, you know, following the order of the day, getting up, going to eat, going to school. It, it was, uh, you know, just being, being in the regime. Right. It was a very regimented lifestyle. The children walked to school in two neat rows. One day it was raining and Dan said, let's run. And we started running with the little guys and uh, the headmaster reprimanded the children and Dan and said, no, we will walk in an orderly manner. There was a lot of emphasis on order. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anybody who's listening who has uh, a heart that's ticking over is going to be appalled at, at hearing this. Uh, your book is St. Michael's Residential School Lament and Legacy. It's from your experience there. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk to you about a number of things, including what happened when you called on the federal government, federal government officials, to come and have a look at what you were witnessing. They did, but what happened to you is of real interest. We will come back with Dan Rubenstein and Nancy Dyson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Dan Rubenstein and Nancy Dyson are my guests. They're the authors of St. Michael's Residential School, Lament and Legacy. They were there in 1970. They were hired as child care workers. Before I ask you about what happened when you actually contacted the authorities and uh, wanted them to come and see what, what was going on, did any of these kids get to see their parents, get, their fam get to see their families at the time they were at those schools? And I, I don't think we should be using the word schools anymore because they weren't. No, you're right. We were shocked to learn that most, many of the children, probably the majority of children, were from Alert Bay, which was a community on an island five miles long by three miles wide. And they did not see their parents while we were there, except when there was a uh, totem raising 
and the children were allowed to go to the totem raising. They were not allowed to go to the potlatch. They, then they saw relatives. Dan and I were really worried about this. Were the parents allowed to visit St. Michael's or not? So we, we reached out to the Indigenous community and we asked an elder to uh, introduce us to two families. And she brought, took us to two homes where two little boys had lived with their parents. And the first, um, it was a single father. Um, he was in pretty rough shape. And he said to us, no, I can't... Uh, it's, it's better that, that you raise my son. He needs to live in the white world. Look at me. I don't want my son growing up like me. But we found out that the father had been through St. Michael's. Mm. And, and yet he felt that he had no choice but to send his son off to the same school where he had had such a miserable experience that he, had been, he was left a broken person. And a similar experience in the second home we visited. So... You see this going on, and you want to do something about it, and you contact federal government, and uh, I think it was called was it called the Department of Indian Affairs at the time. Yes. Yeah. So you contact them, and the you ask them to come and investigate what happened. Well, let let me say that it was a minister, a United Minister, working with the community that led that led this. To, to try to contact the school, try to contact the government. And so that um, we, there joined was, the we joined in the effort and, and helped go around and get names for the petition. Uh, and we don't know whether this petition had any effect or whether it was just a routine visit that, uh, uh, that came to us uh, and when they sent a delegation out. Because the, the government, as Nancy had said, they had just taken over all these schools. So it was trying to, frankly, they were trying to figure out what to do with them. Okay. Uh, so, the, other, the other thing I just wanted to say, Roy, is that any royalties we receive uh, from this book will go to the Indian Residential School Survivor Society in North Vancouver that's run by Angela White, which is a wonderful organization. And, and that's because it would be indecent to make money from uh, this sadness. That's well done. Well said. So now the federal government representatives come to see and you speak to them. And then what? tell us about that and, that and then tell us what happened to you. Three men arrived and the first day they spent with the administrator and uh, they were wined and dined in his apartment. The second day they asked to meet with staff and they said they would meet with us separately from the administrator. And uh, once we were in the staff room and the door was closed, they said, uh, do any of you have concerns about the operation of the school? And we looked around, the other staff members were all silent. But Dan pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket. We'd written a long list of concerns. Um, we'd talked first you know, with the community. These were not our, only our concerns. They were concerns of the community itself. And we listed harsh discipline, inadequate staffing, lack of um, medical care, um, lack of records about the children and their families and their place of birth and their languages and everything Next else. Of kin. Next of kin. Uh, poor integration into the public school, lack of uh, privacy, lack of, um, well, just a lack of respect, caring, love, nurturing. And another uh, member of the staff, the headmaster was furious and he just got apoplectic and he said, Dan and Nancy shouldn't even be allowed to speak. 
You know, they're not Canadians and they're not Christian and they've only been here four months. And Dan said, we've only been here four months, but that was long enough to see what's going on. It's called cultural genocide. Dan's mother um, was an historian and a social activist. And she was very concerned when we wrote to her about what we were seeing. And she asked a family friend, Morris Opler, um, for information. He was researching the effect of American residential schools on the Apache and people. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I literally have about oh, a, minute, a minute left here. So okay, just, sorry. No, go ahead. To tell us what happened. It's, he, it's, Maury Opler was the one who introduced us to that term, cultural genocide. Right. So you spoke yeah. out. They told you you shouldn't have spoken out. The guy was apoplectic, the director, and and you were fired. I was fired the yeah. next day, and uh, and the administrator was decent enough about it. He just said, "This is a terrible fit. You don't belong here." He said, "You're right." And you've lived with this for fifty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I I'm glad you wrote the book. And uh, so it's St. Michael's Residential School, Lament and Legacy. And uh, tell us again where the any any uh, any uh, profits go. It's All the these? Indian Residential School S- Survivor Society in North Vancouver. Okay, Dan Rubenstein, Nancy Dyson, thank you for joining us. Important book you wrote. Thank you very much for thank having you. us, Roy. Uh, pleasure. Take care. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.